Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode four of the Confessions of a Dealmaker podcast. I am your host, Jason Godwin. I would like to also introduce my co-host today, Farah Bass, the operations manager of the Exit Strategy Group. Welcome, Farah. Glad to be here. Glad you're here, too. I'm going to read a quote today on today's topic. I've not found one single mutual fund, one single real estate investment, any gold, silver, or anything else that has given me a higher return than investing in myself. That quote is from Patrick Bet David. Patrick was the founder of the PHP Insurance Group. He is also the owner of Valuetainment, a entrepreneurial focused media company. He's a best-selling author, but he has also recently been the seller of a company and exited his company for well over a hundred million dollars. I wanted to share this quote because Patrick was a immigrant from Iran that showed up here with next to nothing in his family's pocket, all living in a apartment, one bedroom apartment with him and his whole family in California and was able to build a company that he could exit for well over a hundred million dollars. He made several mistakes, but he was able to learn from those mistakes and build something that would set his family up for decades. I, I bring this up because today's topic, I think, is one of the most crucial topics we're going to talk about on this podcast. So it puts a, it's a lot of pressure on us to make sure we get this right. Mm-hmm. And the topic we're going to talk about today is what do business owners need to know about selling their company? So the title of today's episode is The 11 Secrets Your Business Broker Won't Tell You About Selling Your Business. How to sell your company faster and for a higher price. So... This content is lessons that we have learned in working with business owners who have successfully sold companies of high value, have sold those companies for over market value, and also from the lessons learned of companies that didn't sell or sellers that weren't in the position to sell when they needed to sell. Right. So hopefully we'll cover a little bit about the forethought process and what to do to prep your company and then what to do while your company is listed. Exactly. So a spoiler alert, I'm saving what I think is the most important details for last because it helps with retention, (laughs) keeps you all around, keeps us interesting, but also because I believe there's a bit of chronological order here of the thought process and what needs to be covered. Cool. I say we dive right in. We're going to dive right into it. So the first subject we need to consider when thinking of selling a company is the why behind selling a company. A lot of times... Business owners run into a situation where they need to sell and they haven't had the time or ability to think about selling and preparing to sell. So it becomes a function of something they need to accomplish because of an unexpected circumstance that arose or retirement age snuck up on them or a medical condition or um, the need to move, relocate, family issues. For some reason, they have to exit the company and they haven't had the ability to think about that at all. Mm Mm-hmm. So what are some ways a a seller can think through that? Well, the first thing to think about is why would someone sell, right? So some of the reasons would be retirement, a change of lifestyle, health, family, or sometimes they're just, they've been doing the same thing for a long period of time. They're ready for a change. At least these are the reasons that we most commonly see. Mm -hmm. And so understanding why someone would sell or why you would need to sell a business 
puts it in perspective as you're doing your planning for the one day that's going to come, right? Because there's there's these two things that Benjamin Franklin says are certain in life, right? Death and taxes. Um, this is one of my my uh, taglines I use all the time is there's a third thing that business owners are never told about that's certain. And that is one day they will all have to exit their company either expectedly or unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. And it's your choice as a business owner, do you think about that exit and do you plan for it so you can maximize it? Right. And so how do you figure out what time is? If you know your why and you know the reason you're going to sell, when is? how do you figure out the right time? So the first thing is to begin with having a date in mind that you want to retire. If, if you plan to one day retire from the business you're in, or if you are feeling the pressure from the company you're in and you know that you're going to eventually need to change, you need to have that hard conversation with yourself and start making a plan, all right? And knowing, okay, I would rather exit when I want to, not when I need to. Mm-hmm. One of the things we talk about is the, the business bell curve, right? So picture a, picture a bell curve, that goes up and then has, after it peaks, it goes back down. Mm-hmm. That represents the timeline of every company in history. Some companies are still in the climbing phase of that bell curve. They haven't peaked yet, and some have peaked it on the downtrend. So obviously, it's more optimal to sell when you're in an uptrend of business mm-hmm. and growth. There's also some truths that the same person who founded a company won't be the person who takes it to the next level, right? So there's a there's a there's a time and place when the company has the transition where it outgrows the owner, outgrows the team that founded the company. So with that in mind, you have to start having the conversation with yourself. How do I plan to exit? What what are the questions I need to ask myself? And also understand what are the wrong times to exit the company, right? So mm-hmm. the wrong times would be when when there's something that would prevent the company from selling, right? Uh, something that would inhibit the value inhibit the transaction to happen to make a buyer not want to buy the company or give you a negative strategic position, right? That could be mm-hmm. you have supply chain issues that are now maybe uh, making your your bottom line margin hurt, unable to meet customer needs, or there's some, some big changes in the way you do your business now and you've lost a little bit of profit. You optimally don't want to have to sell, during those times. But if you have to, it's still saleable. But if you can control your destiny, you want to plan to sell when it's best for you. Mm-hmm. So you said uh, a lot of times if it's not ideal, it still might be saleable. What might make a business unsaleable? So this is something we often see in smaller to mid-sized companies that an owner has had some habits or behaviors that have built the company in a way becomes difficult to sell. Some of those would be making the owner the center of the business, right? A company with no employees is very difficult to sell because it, it's more of buying a job. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not qualified for E2 visa buyers who typically are purchasing in that smaller price range of, you know, $150,000 to $200,000. Um, it doesn't meet that requirement of having two employees. And someone who's had a enough success they've saved up capital to buy a business they're not necessarily interested in having a job mm-hmm. so that brings some challenges of uh, making a business not saleable you know bad habits with financials if you and this is something we'll talk about a little later in more detail but if you're not showing a lot of cash in your business 
because it's somehow leaking from your business. There's not a lot of provable income. That makes it difficult. There's all kinds of other arrangements that we could talk about in more detail. Um, agreements with other companies that provide services that are not transferable. You know, you can kind of back yourself in a corner with customer concentration. There's a lot of things that a, a business owner can do. And, you know, for today's format, we don't have enough time to talk about them all. But you need to be mindful about there, there may be some possibilities of some situations that can make your company difficult to sell. You should probably find an expert to talk to and identify what those are. Right. That's what I was going to ask is how do you identify that? And it seems like you said an expert. I would say there almost any company can become saleable. Uh, but like you said, it starts with your why. What are your motivations? And if you can use those as your motivations for fixing the obstacles that might come in the sale of your business, um, it's a whole lot easier when you use that motivation and remember your why of this is my end goal, as well as then bringing in experts and and talking to people who might be able to identify those obstacles ahead of time. Right. One of the things I always talk about when we're speaking to a, a business owner that's not ready to sell in the next year or two is you need to think of your business with the end in mind. And anyone who's starting a business or founding a company right now, you're in the growth phase. There's one thing that is certain one day you will have to sell that company or exit that company. So one of our founder, Burt Risden, he has this saying, the only reason to start a business is to one day sell it. Mm-hmm. So you need to have that in mind when you're building that company that you need to build it with the end in mind. The end goal is that one day you want to sell it. You want to be able to retire. You want to be able to pass your legacy on to the next owner and it outlive you. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that if you didn't begin with the end in mind, you can't now start, but it's easier when you, the earlier you begin that process and that thought process of thinking through what's my exit strategy, the, er, the easier it is to maximize your value. Right. And one of the things we've seen true in our industry is if a owner at least has two years to plan to write the ship, you can still have a very successful exit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even well, most in most cases, business owners that are making profit, they're successful. The business gro- are, is growing every year. They will have a very successful exit. But you can go in above and beyond if you do these extra things, mm-hmm. right? Make these little changes, make these tweaks. So, it's a great idea to start planning for this three, five, even ten years before you plan to retire. If you're in your forties and you know, hey, by my uh, mid fifties or early sixties, I want to retire. It's a great time to have a conversation with the individuals and professionals you need to, to start making that plan. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately just because your, your business is profitable um, or saleable or you're ready to exit doesn't mean there's not more money on the table, more value on the table. You could expedite the process. There are a lot of other factors that would make it valuable um, to think about this process ahead of time. Right. You want to build a company that you can sell so that you know you'll maximize the value of what you're spending your time doing. If you're going to spend 10, 20, sometimes 30 years building a company, you don't want the exit to be the afterthought, right? Because there's only four ways you can exit a company. Mm -hmm. The first way is you can pass it down to a family member. Maybe a child takes it over. But one thing we often see is um, children who are raised in companies that either have the entrepreneurial spirit and they want to start their own thing or they have seen their parents sacrifice and they're not necessarily on board for the same journey, mm-hmm. right? We, we've talked about it in depth in one of our other podcasts. We don't have to do it in depth here. The second option is you can shut it down, you know, turn the lights off, walk away. 
The third option is you can liquidate everything because you have to get rid of everything at once. If you mm-hmm. have a lease, you have a location. But then you, with both those two situations, you abandon the customers and the employees, but you also don't set anything aside for retirement. So that leaves the only viable option is selling the operating company. So you, knowing that you can now plan for the future and know that this has to be on your mind mm-hmm. when you're building your company. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. That makes sense. So, so if you are planning and you have an expert coming in, what does it look like when it's about time to say to sell? Uh, what does it look like? Um, how do you identify the plan? It's the right time. It's, you know, go time to execute. One of the things, uh, you know, again, I'll, I'll quote Bert Risden. He says, the time to sell is when you're making more money than you ever thought you'd make, <laughs> right? Because you want to sell when you're in upward trend of growth. Mm-hmm. Um, you could still sell when you're, you have flat revenue, even with downtrending revenue, right? We've, we've had um, buyers that are more than willing to find a value-add opportunity, and they're more than willing to take on that opportunity and, and invest in it and grow the company. But for, for your sake to maximize the sale, you want to make sure you're selling in an upward trend, right? So you want to sell when you want to, not when you have to. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that many sellers make a mistake of is they wait until they need to sell, the, an event happens, and then they have to make a sale, mm-hmm. right? So let's say a health issue pops up. They have no plan. They've never even considered selling. Mm-hmm. And now they have to do it under pressure. Mm-hmm. That makes it difficult to achieve their goals for mm-hmm. us and them. And we want to make sure that they're having the best experience possible because they get to do this once, maybe twice if you're lucky, sell a company. So we have to get it right. Another issue we see is procrastination. Sometimes it's sellers and business owners are working on, they're playing whack-a-mole every day with the problems that arise. Mm. So it's hard to make it a priority to execute on, on those tasks when you have other things that are you know, flashing red lights you have to take care of in your business, hiring issues, firing issues, customer issues, product issues, and you, how do you, how do you do it all, right? So that's a whole nother conversation for another day, but you have to make it a priority because it's going to sneak up on, on you if you don't. Mm-hmm. You need to make an exit plan. You need to sit down with a financial advisor, an accountant, an attorney, and, and a business broker and talk about what is it going to take to sell this company and how much money do I need to retire on. Mm-hmm. You need to create financial targets to hit that exit. One of the challenges we run into is business owners tell us, how much they want to sell their company for, not how much they think it's worth. Mm -hmm. And there's oftentimes a gap in those two figures, and we're not able to bridge that gap without having the financials to hit that gap. Mm -hmm. So it's good to know what target you need to hit to get to the financial goal you want to exit the company with. And with that in mind, it's a great idea to get a valuation of the company in its current state. Know how much it's worth now, and then know how much it needs to be worth when you go to exit. If you know that, okay, when I retire at, say, you know, 60, 62, I want to have, be able to exit my company for a million and a half dollars. How much revenue do I need to have to do that? And what characteristics does my company need to have to meet that goal? Right. So you have this date on the calendar um, and you're building the, what does the exit plan look like? So I don't want to go, that's a long conversation to go over the detailed portion of an exit plan. But in summary, it's knowing what your financial goals are and how much money you need for retirement. Or if you just, I mean, if you just plan to do something different and you're not going to fully retire, how much capital do you need to exit? Mm-hmm. Work with a financial planner for that. Work mm-hmm. with an exit planner, a certified mm-hmm. exit planner. We can recommend several. Mm-hmm. 
and know how much money you need to do what you want to do next and then meet with a business broker an accountant attorney to determine what you need to do the company to get to that goal right you've hit on a couple of times that there are things that are further than just increasing profits can you expand on that what does that look like this is actually one of my favorite topics the difference in building value and building profit in a company um, shameless plug, I actually have a blog series we wrote on this. I believe it's a six-part blog series on the difference in building profit and building value in a company because they're not always synonymous or mutually exclusive. So there's several things you can do in a company that would increase the profits but not increase the value or would negatively affect the value. And it's good to know what those are so you can be prepared for them. So one of the, the major things we see is customer concentration issues. There's several service-based cl- customers and clients, we've seen that they build their business around a larger client of theirs that may make up 60 or 70% of their revenue, which is great for profits because it's lower administrative cost. It's lower operational cost to execute. You're probably working on larger projects. The downside is there's a lot of inherent risk with that client possibly leaving. So a buyer looks at that as, well, you have a lot of your eggs in one basket. So what happens if after you, Mr. Seller or Ms. Seller, leave, that relationship leaves with you, and then that 60 to 70, 50, 30% of the revenue leaves too? So customer concentration can sneak up on you and will definitely increase the bottom line in most cases, but it will massively affect the value of your company. Mm-hmm. Another big item we see is the owner's role. So if the owner has a very active role in the company in, in management, in execution, and actually delivering products and services, we now have to replace that owner with the buyer after they exit. I always like to say the value of a company is derived by the size of the hole that the owner leaves when they exit. So if you're the end-all, be-all in your company, everything must go in and through you, every decision that's going to leave a very large hole, especially with technical knowledge. How much technical knowledge remains in the company after the owner exits? Mm-hmm. Is there a licensed qualifier that can qualify the business? Is there an operations manager that can you can raise up to CEO? As an owner, you should always be grooming talent and looking for talent at people who can make you unemployed. I think as a business owner, your main job is to make yourself unemployed and try to raise people up around you so that you can go find new endeavors to pursue, whether that be business development, marketing, lead generation, your greatest capacity as a leader in the company is as a visionary. Mm-hmm. You should not be the one executing all the tasks and servicing all the clients. It should be your goal to no longer do that, grow your company in a way that you're, you're lifting people up around you to do that and serve, serve those clients and living out there, expressing themselves in their work through their expertise and passions. And by doing so, you're going to build a company that's going to far exceed the value of, of the competitors you're selling against. Mm-hmm. So it's good to take consideration other things that are, are simple that cause uh, can increase profits but then decrease value is having too many family members work in a company. Because if they're overpaid for the role they do, it's uh, they may not transfer with the company once it sells because a new owner may not want to pay them those salaries. Or if they do not transfer with the company after it sells and they decide to leave, you have to now hire more roles or replace more roles so there's more risk associated with that. Um, there's other complications like multiple locations, multiple services, not on the same vertical, 
um, trade and barter relationships, we start to see more of that now. Like, oh yeah, I provide this service for, you know, this guy over here and he lets me, you know, rent this facility for that and trade. That's not going to convey with the business. So you need to get those ironed out before you sell. I think it's helpful in this situation when you're trying to determine if something increases profits but decreases value is to put yourself in a buyer's shoes or look at yourself like you're buying a different business. If if the owner is involved in and has these you know, relationships, these barter and trade relationships, would you buy that? It doesn't make any sense for you to buy that. So why would you expect someone else to buy your business like that? And I think it's helpful if you kind of put on a different lens it's hard as a business owner to do that, but to put on a different lens and see it as an, with an outside perspective. Um, and if you can't do that on your own, you know, have, you know, a business mentor, business partner, you know, a close, someone who knows the, the business and can speak truth into that um, without bias and say, hey, no, I think this is probably not uh, the most wise decision for your business if you plan to sell one day. Absolutely. And that's a mistake we see often is sellers aren't putting themselves in the buyer's perspective and the buyer's shoes. So they're, they're trying to, again, make a plan based on how they see the business. And then when they go to exit and the buyer doesn't see it their way, they just don't understand. Right. It's hard. I mean, it, it's very hard to do. Right. But so, so we just talked about things that are um, maybe increased profits, or I would say even really in the sense that they decrease expenses, but decrease value as well. What are some things that might, um, increase profits and increase value. So these are simple, but not easy. (laughs) The first thing I would say is trying to replace the owner's role. Mm -hmm. That is the most important thing you can do in the company is have what we call a non owner operator, Mm -hmm. or you can also say integrator. That's a common term who can basically run the company in the owner's absence. That is probably the most profitable and value-driving decision you can make as a business owner. Building a solid team, um, building the foundation of your company and SOPs and procedures, having a really solid hiring plan, onboarding and training plan, basically structuring and building your company with a foundation that is documented and written, maybe if that's through technology, you know, using project management, using places to store your SOPs so that all of the knowledge and information in the company does not live in the heads of the team members, but lives in documents and in software. So, and in writing so that, or a video too, you use tools like Loom. We use that often to to train and, and build SOPs. There's products like Tango you can use to record SOPs on screen capture and then make that into a PDF document and distribute it to your team. Um, those will give a buyer a sense of peace when buying a company because they know how much detail the owners put in the company. They know there's probably that detail extends to other areas. Mm-hmm. And in the way that that increases profits too is efficiency. You're streamlining things. You're spending less time communicating, less time explaining things, less time training because you have a system. And me as the operations manager, I'm big on this. And so I see how if we have something that's done differently by every person, it's confusing for us. It's confusing for the clients. If someone were to come in and buy a team that is everybody's doing their own thing, I mean, that's just not attractive. But also the more uh, we streamline the way we do things and have unity in that is incredibly helpful for our efficiency. And so we're spending less time on things, therefore spending more time on things that make money. Exactly. 
we're kind of fortunate that we get to work with so many very successful companies. We get to steal what works mm -hmm. and we get to make note of what doesn't mm -hmm. and apply that to our own company. And I feel like we're able to get a lot accomplished with our team because we have these in place. You know, we have recorded SOPs that live in documents. We have screen capture uh, videos and um, PDFs that outline how to do processes. Um, we use project management software so that we can assign tasks and there's clear communication and doing all of these things will increase your profits, but also increase the likelihood a buyer want to buy your company. Mm. Um, I, I mean, it, even things as simple as using QuickBooks for your financials and not using um, hand ledgers, which we <laughs> still in 2023, we had one this year, someone brought in ledger books. So that's still happening. Mm -hmm. Right. So those are a few things that would hopefully increase both both profits and value. Uh, we skipped a category. What about the things that might not increase profits or might cost a little money to put in place, but or um, are kind of irrelevant to the money bottom line, um, but help to increase the value in the long run? So the first one, again, we'll, I'm going to keep banging this drum, is the owner's involvement, right? So the owner working less may affect the bottom line, but then it puts more responsibility on the team to perform and to excel, right? I've learned, and I love to hear your feedback on this. I've learned that sometimes I'm over managing in areas I don't need to. Mm -hmm. And if I just back off a little bit, mm -hmm. everyone has the freedom to now express themselves and, and to step up to the plate. Mm -hmm. And people are sometimes ready to step up to the plate, but they're not because I'm being too overbearing or a leader's being too overbearing right. or micromanaging. And so by allowing your team to start taking on some of your responsibilities as the owner, you're now building value. But in the interim, it may cost you money because you're not directly producing. But your goal as a business owner should be to work on the business and not in the business. You should be designing, delegating, deciding, and not doing. Mm -hmm. And the more you're doing, the more you're hurting your bottom line in the long run because you're affecting your value, but also you cannot scale because you're only one person. You only have 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And if you want to be able to spend time with your family, you want to be able to spend time with the things that are important to you and the people that are important to you, you cannot be the business. Mm -hmm. You will eventually you will eventually not be able to work as hard. You eventually have something come up that prevents you from being able to work 50 hours a week. Mm -hmm. um, you eventually have something come up that prevents you from being able to execute in the same level you are right now. So you best while you have the ability, start empowering your team to do that alongside of you so that one day they can do it without you. And I think that kind of speaks to short-term sacrifice for long-term gain. You know, it might cost money to hire an admin, or it might cost money because you're not being the salesperson, and so you have to take time to train someone, or you have to not be the one calling, which means you're not closing as many deals, you know. But I think in the long run, like you said, it does, you do then have time to focus on the things that are going to make the most money. And it's like, do you want to save money now? Or if your plan is to sell one day, do you want to make a lot of money then? So it's like, when are you going to make that money? And then how much, what is the scale of that money? Can you, if you only have the capacity to work 40 hours a week, and if you work more than that, it affects your family or your health or your business or whatever, it's either now you save a little bit of money or make a little more profit, or you maybe increase it the, the value of your company by 50, 100, 200%, you know, depending on the situation. You're 100% right. Some other things I have on the list, um, picking a niche 
sometimes that could cost some expense upfront if you're saying no to clients. But later on, you pick it up in efficiency by having um, a more streamlined process, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes we see buyers, especially in the in the strategic realm, they want to buy something in a niche. They don't want to buy something that's a generalist business mm-hmm. um, because they may have a synergy they're trying to fulfill in their own business. Mm-hmm. We do this one thing. We do it really, really well. Right. Other things, uh, trying to convert revenue from, from project-based to recurring. Uh, little secret. Recurring revenue businesses sell for more than project-based businesses. It's just a fact of life um, because there's less risk, right? You know, you have a relationship that's ongoing, revenue's coming in every month versus having to go out and um, and close another project every month. Mm-hmm. I'd argue, I mean, that ideally, you know, or at first glance, that might not be uh, something that costs money, maybe. Uh, that's just kind of a w- different way to do business. But I'd say in the end, it usually makes more money. I think. Oh yeah, it because does. you have loyal customers, and you have rec- you know you don't have to like you said you're spending less time on sales. Yeah. Um, another one that's kind of unseen, but ends up showing up during a sale a lot of time is tech and infrastructure. So if you have a tech backend, if you have a server, if you have software, um, having the most up to date technology and something readily available, like we sold a property management company recently. And one of the issues that popped up was they had a older software that not many people were using it anymore. So buyers were like, oh, what? we have to migrate all of these clients over to this mm-hmm. new software. And it wasn't like a deal killer, but it was like a death by a thousand cuts, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can use the most modern technology, software, process, procedures, it may cost you in the front end, but in efficiency and saleability, you're going to make the money on the back end. Right. And I think, you know, I'm a physical copy kind of girl. I like a physical calendar. You know me. I have my paper notebook still. Um, But so don't fight the wave of technology. There's no way to fight it. It's going to help efficiency. It's going to look good to buyers. People want the nicest tech. You don't always even have to spend a lot of money on it. It can add up. Obviously, if you have a lot of software costs, but there are a lot of free, you said Tango earlier, that's a free service for creating SOPs. You know, there are a lot of free services, or at least you can try things out until you decide, okay, I'm ready to pull the trigger on this one. Like Loom is $10 a month. Yeah. Um, Monday.com, which we're an affiliate for, as well as Asana, I recommend both. It's just two different flavors of project management softwares, but you can build them into whatever you want. You could build them into CRMs. You could build them into databases. I mean, they're very flexible. We also, for CRMs, um, you need a CRM. It doesn't matter if you're a plumbing company, if you're a hair, if you're a, um, a hair and makeup business, your health and wellness, you need a CRM because you want to make sure you can retarget those clients for marketing to grow your company. You also want your buyers to be able to have that data because they're going to want it. Shout out to Go High Level. We are an affiliate for Go High Level. We're a reseller for Go High Level and we recommend it. It has helped us grow our business dramatically. It's a great yeah. tool. So for a CRM, that's our recommendation. Also, Monday.com has CRM capabilities as well. Great tools, can be very low cost, high ROI. I think that's a whole other episode of how to streamline operations or some, something there because I see uh, there's a whole other conversation. That's, that's where I nerd <laughs> out. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I love a good software. I love a good automation. 
but that's a whole nother yeah. talk for automations is a whole com- that needs to be its own episode yes okay well so anyway let's stay on topic um okay so you have we we've talked a little bit about increasing profit versus value um you're still in the process of prepping your business to sell now you've made a plan you've maybe made it a little more um valuable you have a timeline in mind what do you do next so this goes back to what you said earlier you have to see it from the buyer's perspective and what is going to make your business stand out to other buyers so number one is revenue revenue growth um People don't buy potential, they buy facts. So no one cares what they what you think your business will do in three years. No one cares. I'm going to repeat that one more time. <laughs> no one cares. I had this conversation once a week. What about my Google reviews? Well, your Google reviews affect your revenue. What about my SEO? Your SEO affects your revenue. What about my, my marketing efforts? Or what about you know this and that, the value of my assets? All of it contributes to the bottom line of your revenue whether through reducing expenses or increasing profits. So that's what matters. It all comes into play there. So if you have you have brand new assets, that's great. Those assets probably have lower maintenance costs, so it affects your bottom line, increase your bottom line. So you, you can't increase the value of your business plus your assets unless it affects your bottom line revenue. That's where your growth is. Um, if you're doing all these marketing initiatives and you have all this money invested in SEO, you've we had a guy one time, I have $200,000 invested in SEO. doesn't matter. It's not producing revenue on the bottom line. So you can't, you can't get value from that and say, well, yeah, I'm ranking number one in, you know, this market for this. Well, it's not showing up in the bottom line. So it doesn't matter. Right. So understanding revenue is going to be, I, I want to interrupt you. Hold okay. on. That sounds a little contradictory to our last point of profit versus value. So can you maybe explain that of how do you, increase value like what is the purpose of increasing value uh, and increasing profit like where's that line if it you're if you're saying no one cares we need to do the bottom line where does value play into that so we're talking about when you're going to market right so this mm-hmm. is when you're when you're arriving on the market buyers are searching based on geography mm-hmm. deal size and revenue and industry those four categories are what they're using to to look for businesses and the first filter they're going to look at is revenue so let's say you want to sell your business for $10 million one day, right? The first thing they're going to look at is before they even get to all of those value factors that you built in, they're going to look at the ratio of your net revenue to your asking price. Mm. So if you're if you're trying to get a 10 to 1 multiple, it's not going to happen. You're, unless you're a software company and you have some unique widget that no one else has or you're in the or you're in medical or you have some very strategic advantage that no one else has. 10 to 1 is not going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we look at the all the deals coming out of Axial. We look at their their reports. Um, you know, those a very high multiple in this market is 6x, mm-hmm. right? So the first thing they're going to look at is the, is the multiple to the asking price. And so that's where you're going to stand out. Businesses that do over 500,000 in uh, net revenue, so SDE or EBITDA, those will have a multiple increase over businesses that do not. That's that's kind of the break point where you start to get the attention of private equity buyers. You start to get the attention of um, institutional buyers, strategics. They're looking for businesses that make over 500K. So, it, so I just want to make sure the audience is understanding this correctly. Uh, your 
the revenue and the bottom line is the number one indicator that makes you stand out for the buyer's first glance. Right. When they're, when they're first looking at your business. Once they're like, Ooh, that stands out to me that, that, uh, EBITDA or that SDE looks good. That revenue looks good. They click, they get more information. Once they see the more information on the business, that's where the value plays in. How are you going to, if this buyer is looking at 10 businesses, 50, a hundred businesses, what makes you stand out at that point? That's what is beyond profit. Right. Let me go down a rabbit trail real quick. For buyers who are not going to operate a business themselves as an owner operator, even some that do, a lot of times they have a virtual assistant or they have uh, team members within that fund that are searching for deals. Mm-hmm. All they do all day is they're emailing brokers like us. They're reading teasers that get to emailed um, outbound. They're looking on LinkedIn. They're looking in places like Axial or any other uh, deal aggregating sites. And they're bringing all of these deals that may have a 20% chance of fitting to their board or to the person who's the ultimate decision maker for buying that company. And the first thing they're going to look at is, does this meet our thresholds of what we can invest to um, the limits of what we can invest in a company as, as far as the multiple net revenue. That's number one, the first filter they're going to look at. So to get you to the table, to have the conversation, that's why I say that's number one. Now, all of the things we talked about previously about building value will increase the revenue and will put you right. ahead. Right. Also, that falls into those competitive advantages, which when you advertise and the little blurb you can write about your company to advertise it, that's what's going to make them stop, pause, and start to notice that your company is way different than everything else on the market. Mm-hmm. If, if you have an operations manager, you have you know two tiers of management staff, you have the owner works less than 40 hours a week, that's a big indicator that the business is very strong. But the first thing they're going to look at is revenue. The mm-hmm. second thing is going to be what makes this business stand out. They're going to look at competitive advantages. They're going to look at organization structure, and how the company's organized. They're going to look at the team structure. They're going to look at um, those details that you share in the beginning stages of marketing before you release the confidential information to make a decision if they even want to sign an NDA. Mm -hmm. Because the buyers are hunting for a deal, and they may be looking at 50, 60 deals at one time. So they have to make a decision very rapidly on if they're going to pursue this or not. It's almost like your resume. Like if, I, if I'm applying for a job, the the higher, the, I'm sorry, the in, the person interviewing might look at all of these applications and these resumes and say, no, 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 just based on the one blurb or the one page resume that you provide. So that is kind of like your first in is how do you make your business stand out in that first, um, that first step that you take with a buyer. And then after that, you know, you want them to want to know more. Right, right. So in the process of marketing a business, you're marketing it confidentially, right? So no one knows who you, who the business is. If you did it well, if you disagree with me, I have a whole, we have a whole podcast on this topic of, of the importance of confidentiality and why to use a business broker consulting company. I suggest you go listen to that before you come debate me. But you're, if you're marketing your business confidentially, they don't know who you are. So they, they may not be able to see all of those um, brand factors that make you stand out immediately. So how do you get them to stop and read and engage with your marketing of listing your company? Well, having consistent revenue growth, 
having recurring revenue is definitely a plus. If you have some type of contracts or subscriptions or, or mechanisms that allow people to pay you repeat repetitively, mm-hmm. that's great. The quality of earnings and, your, and how clean your financials are, that is another thing that makes your company stand out. Um, what type of competitive advantage do you have? Um, why do your customers choose you first? What about your geography? What about your products and services? What stands out about your company? So we need to find a way to market that so that we can get the attention of buyers so that you're the first choice, right? One thing we've seen in, in our efforts that allow us to beat our competitors when it comes to selling companies is we're really good marketers. We're really good at getting engagement on listings. And we typically can get a higher price when we're selling a business because we can get the best buyers to engage. That's because we know how to ask the right questions. We know how to interview sellers. We know how to pull the information out of the story and then tell the story in a way that it compels a buyer to engage, right? Mm-hmm. That's so crucial to selling a business. You're telling a story because if I'm selling a building, I can. I said this on a podcast earlier this week, right? Um, I can hire a inspector to go look at it. I can hire an attorney to dig up title work. I can hire an environmental company to do a phase one or phase two all without ever leaving my desk. I can't do that with a business. It's something I cannot see, right? So we have to represent that in a way that engages the buyer. I can't just show a picture of the business online and say, yeah, this is a great you know, restaurant. Come buy it because we don't want anyone to know it's for sale. Mm-hmm. We want it to be confidential. Mm-hmm. So it's so important to come up with ways to make your business stand out from mm-hmm. a buyer's perspective when you're building your company. Know what they know what they're going to be looking for, right? Mm-hmm. And understand the importance of confidentiality and how difficult it is to market a business confidentially and make it stand out. I remember when I got first got hired and you were like just explaining the whole process of marketing confidentially and explain how, hey, I, you can't say it. if there's only one sub shop in town, you can't say it's the, you know, sub, stru- sub shop in Main Street. You have to kind of almost play this like manipulative word game of trying to make it look attractive without giving it away. And I was like, how do you even do that? Like I was mind blown that that's, yeah, you have to play ninja skill. You know, you have to play those ninja skills to even market a company properly and, and then also make it look good. You know, it's not just getting it out there, not revealing the location or the name of it. It's making it sound attractive. Right. One of the compliments we often get by our buyers is our marketing Packets are the best I've ever seen. Um, and that brings me to point six of this. Mm-hmm. One of the secrets to selling your business fast and for a high value is hiring the right business broker. Mm-hmm. We're going to go through a whole series on this of how to hire business brokers. I'm going to just go over the high points so we can move on. Um, I don't want to beat that drum too much. But you need to understand the rollover broker confidentiality, creating momentum, and keeping the seller focused on running the business. Because if you stop focusing on running your business, your business will stop working for you. You will stop growing in revenue, and the buyers will see that, and it will cause pause. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll go over all that in detail in that other podcast we're going to do on the topic. Mm-hmm. You need to know what to look for in a broker, right? You want to have a broker that has knowledge in your industry. They have expertise in your deal size. Um, they've done They've done deals in that deal size so that you know they can get it done. For example, if you have a pizza restaurant, you may not want someone who sells $5 million businesses to sell it because they may not have the right skills and, and the inverse of those two, right? So um, like I've noticed within our team, there's businesses that I'm more skilled at and there's businesses I'm not skilled at, right? There's there, that Stephanie is way better at than me because she's the right person for that job. She's right. more knowledge in the industry. So knowing 
the track record and type of deal size and industry your broker works within, right? Understanding the process, understanding how they sell to make sure they're going to be the right fit for you. Um, make sure they're an IBABA member or if you're in Florida, a BBF member. Make sure they're a professional, not just someone who does this part-time as a hobby because we do see that often. Mm-hmm. And that requires asking the right questions. It's great to ask for referrals from attorneys and accountants of who they recommend. Um, do searches online, mystery shop, brokers. Ask the broker for references. These are all important points in hiring a broker. Mm-hmm. We'll spend a lot more time on this in detail. Mm-hmm. So for now, we'll, we're going to move on and uh, well, let's you, I want to see if you have anything to... No, I think that's great. I think, there, like you said, there's no point in being that in drama. I think uh, there is a whole a whole topic there. I mean, mystery shopping them and, and figuring out if they're up to your standards is super important. But yep. but I think we can move on. I mean, so working with a broker, let's say you don't work with a broker or you want to make sure the broker does this, is the, the next point would be while you're on market, while your your business is for sale, it's really, really important that you're only working with the right buyers. Right. A lot of times we see sellers get fatigued because they get under contract with someone who doesn't have the capacity to close. So understanding how to vet buyers and how to choose the right buyers because you're, you're in essence betting on the winning racing racing horse, right? It's um, You're going to lock yourself up for 90 to 120 days with somebody. You have to make sure that the marriage is going to work out. You have to make sure that they're going to take you to the closing table. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you do that? So you need to know their, their track record, right? W- where did they come from? Where are they getting their, their source of funds? Um, what is their motive to closing the deal? Are they a, a firm, a family office? Is it an owner-operator? Are they trying to get a visa? Um, are they a strategic buyer? These are all things to take in consideration because they all have a different requirement to close. Understanding if they're going to fund the deal through all cash, which I've only done two of those in my career. So I, I if I'll, I'll, one thing sellers should hear right now, if you're expecting a seller to ride in on a white horse and write you a multi-million dollar check and then you exit two weeks later never to be seen again, that is a fantasy. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> know that now. That doesn't happen. I've only seen it happen twice um, and they were very small deals. So don't do not have that expectation. Mm-hmm. And we're speaking to that in a few minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so understanding what motivates buyers, understanding how they're, the buyer is going to be getting the deal done, right? Are they using, are they leveraging 401k funds? Are they expecting seller financing? How much seller financing? Are they going to expect an earnout? Are they going to be using an SBA loan? That's a whole nother topic we'll get into. Um, are they a search fund? So they, they have promised capital, but it's not their capital, right? That's important to know. So it, you have to have a process for how you're going to vet these buyers and understand the process. And and speaking of the SBA, a lot of buyers we work with use the SBA. And so it, it's something that sellers need to be versed on mm-hmm. to know what that process is. When I first started, a lot of the feedback I got from other brokers is, oh, do not use the SBA. You'll get so frustrated your sellers will get frustrated. Deals never close. I decided to challenge that as I am a contrarian. I don't <laughs> like to go with just what people tell me. And I leaned heavily into the SBA when I first started. And I would say a large portion of our deals, we in the beginning, it was almost 90%. It's less now. Um, but most of our deals were SBA in the beginning. And so we have a great relationship with like 16 lenders. We have had great success, I would say, in the high 90s of close rates. We've only had a lender one time pull a term sheet on us for 
Um, an unexpected reason the second time was because of termites in the building, right? So two deals in all the deals we've done where the lender backed out at the last minute. Mm-hmm. It's a great tool. Right. And so it's important for, for sellers to understand how that can play into selling their business. Because one thing we've seen to be true is um, the SBA allows a larger pool of buyers to purchase your company because they can do so with less funds. Expand. So there's a loan called the SBA 7A, which is what's most common in business acquisitions. And I'm not able to go into a lot of detail. Uh, This is all for educational purposes, not advisory. Be very clear there. Um, But the SBA allows buyers to purchase a company with as little as a 10% equity injection in the total project, the deal. So not just the business, but including closing costs or any legal fees or SBA guarantee fees. So somebody could buy a million-dollar business for $110,000, $15,000, dollars down and close that deal, and that business may produce two, dollars $300,000 a year in revenue. So you could get a return on your initial investment in as little as 90 days if the multiple is low enough on the business. So that's very attractive to a lot of buyers. There's a lot. There's some downsides for the buyers. They have to sign a personal guarantee. If you're in a homestead state like Florida, it means your house is protected, but you still have to sign a personal guarantee. Typically, you have to take life insurance out for the value of the loan. Sometimes you have to put your house up as collateral. So buyers who are willing to do this are highly motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a flippant decision they make. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're making this decision with the purpose to close because they're willing to put their house on the line to make sure this business works. So, so working with motivated buyers is so important. And I think to that is the reason that it matters to a seller or a business owner looking to sell is because it expands your pool of buyers exponentially. You are now able to market to a higher pool of people um, and therefore increasing your likelihood of finding the right person. Right. And I think this is the, again, almost every single one of these points of these 11 could be their own podcast. We're only Mm -hmm. on number, we're on number eight right now and we're at 50 minutes, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got to do our best to give the highlights here so we can cover all this info. But I love feedback in the comments on what you want to hear more of. I'm going to finish a few things up on the SBA real quick and then move on to the next topic. So what's important for sellers to know? Quality of earnings in your financials is very important here because the SBA is going to vet your business based on how much cash they can see. Um, there's addbacks, which addbacks are adjustments to the financials. They're expenses that are discretionary in nature that would not necessarily be an expense of the business operated under different circumstances. So example would be interest, right? Interest is an add back because you don't have to have a loan to run the business. You took a loan out and that could be added back to the bottom line. Um, owner's salary in some cases, depreciation in some cases, those are just some examples. But when you start running your business in a way that you have very creative accounting and you have expenses running through the business that are not SBA qualified expenses, you may have a $200,000 owner benefit, but if we can only prove 120,000 of it, that's all the SBA is going to give you to use for your debt coverage calculations. Mm-hmm. And that's what's important to know is the loan has the cash flow in order for the bank to feel comfortable in, in being involved. And as long as you have that in mind three years before you exit, because that's what they're going to look at is three years of financials, then you can have a business that cash flows very well and sells for a high price because it's bank lendable. Right. So what does that look like for a seller? Um, where it sounds like financials are a huge key in this whole 
puzzle, uh, both for buyer proof, proving to the buyer that you're making money, but also for lending. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, this is number nine, the importance of your financials. This is often when we look at our sales funnel where our clients get stuck. We have a conversation with a seller and they're like, yep, I want to sell. You guys are great. Let's move forward. Let's do the valuation. And we give them the list of what we need and all of a sudden it's crickets. And they go to their accountant and their accountant shrugs their shoulder and says, it's going to take me a while to produce this because you haven't been doing your financials like this. Um, typically you need three years of business tax returns, P&Ls, balance sheets, and then your most recent year-to-date P&L or trailing 12 months. That's what lenders are going to ask for. It's also what buyers are going to ask for. If you're not able to show the cash flow of your business using those tools, you're going to have a hard time selling it. That's not to say that it doesn't sell. We see gas stations sell all the time. We see uh, liquor stores. We see restaurants. We see all kinds of local-based businesses sell for... Um, for a high price that are cash-based businesses, but what typically happens is the seller has to take some risk on too, and there's typically some form of seller financing because you're not going to qualify for SBA financing, which means you're looking for a different type of buyer. So it's a longer process on the market. The deals will still close, but they're not going to get an offer in 90 days unless you're priced fairly and you're priced you know, mm-hmm. to sell. Um especially in those upper ranges. If you're in a smaller business, let's say it's going to sell for two fifty to 400000 you're more likely to get an offer quicker. But when we get into the six, dollars $700,000 range of a business that's not financeable, it's probably going to take a year to sell. Right, because you're not going to have a buyer come in and say, I don't see the numbers. I also can't get financing. I'm not going to write you a check. You said this earlier. I mean, it's just kind of common sense that if the numbers aren't there um, and there's no way to prove them, I mean, again, put yourself in the buyer's shoes. There's no, uh, there's very little um, reason for them to trust you where they have no reason to trust you. So you either have to A, find a different way to build that trust or B, just get your financials in order. You know, the less commingling possible, the more that you can prove on paper, um, having an accountant, I can't stress this enough, having the right accountant, (laughs) get your financials in order for you. And it's not just you. I think that adds a little bit of validity to it. To quote the great Denzel Washington, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove. Mm -hmm. And that goes for business transactions as well. Um, there's this saying that, uh, Herb Stewartson and Burrisden, our president and vice president, say sometimes the baby's just ugly, right? <laughs> sometimes the business is just financially ugly, and it is what it is, and 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 we have to make do with it. We will sell it, but it's not optimal. We want to make sure we can avoid that at all costs. So it's very important for business owners to know that your financials are going to be very crucial in getting the business sold. Um, the things that make it stand out will get the buyer to the table, but being able to correlate all the information you gave them will get them closed, right? Mm-hmm. So buyers don't pay for potential, they pay for performance. Mm-hmm. So it's not what your business will do in two years or what it can do, it's what it's doing now and, and what it's done in the past. That's what they're paying for. Um, you know, one of the things we get sometimes is, why well, have all these assets. How does that affect the price of my business? Again, um, the assets were used to generate the financial performance. So that's the measurement that buyers are looking at. 
the non-financial aspects like we talked about are, are, very, are equally important, right? Team structure, owner involvement. Um, but when it comes to assets, it t- typically shows them financial performance, so the multiple applies to that as well. Uh, same thing with marketing, SEO, reputation management. So, And like you said earlier, I want to highlight it's important to get the right accountant because not every accountant is the right accountant. <laughs> I always say not all attorneys and accountants are created equal, and that typically shows up when you're ready to sell your company. Mm-hmm. And if you need one, we have a great network of really high-performing uh, accountants that can help you out and get you ready to sell. Um, and I think this just speaks to back what we were speaking to earlier is if you are spending time gathering documents, you're ready to sell for whatever reason, you might even be in a rush. If you are spending time gathering documents, you're not spending time on your business. And what we see a lot is a lot of the sellers that are ready fall out at this point because what happened is they don't know how to gather the documents. They don't know where to gather them from. Uh, they don't know what they're looking for. And maybe they know they're kind of a hot mess because they're commingled with personal expenses. Uh, they're commingled with, um, you know, the, the previous years aren't there. They filed like 10 tax return extensions. You know, they haven't filed the taxes. The reality is that's just stressful. I mean, thinking about it right now, like when I speak about that, that's stressful for a business owner. And if you're worried about that and you're not worried about your business, you're not performing. So I think the whole point of that is, is having someone on your team who can help you um, to get that in order so that you can focus on what matters. Professionals hire professionals. Ooh, I like that. Uh, quick little story. A few years ago, it was during COVID, I took a, I took a friend of mine, we'll say, to look at a business we were gonna, he was going to purchase. And the first red flag when we went to get into pre-due diligence were Putting an L- we had like a kind of a verbal LOI outline. The seller said, well, that seems acceptable. You know, we wanted to do a little bit of underwriting before submitting the LOI. And first thing we find out is that the seller is doing all the bookkeeping. And then the seller also put together the tax return. Hmm. So we then started to realize that the seller was working 60 hours a week and they were doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and doing everything in the company. And the buyer's reaction was, I'm not buying a job. I don't want your job. I want to hire professionals to do this. But then we started looking at it, and the buyer noticed that, well, if we start hiring to replace all these roles, that's going to take 40, 60K out of the bottom line. And now this business is not as appealing as it was because that mm-hmm. took the cash flow down from 250000 to 190000 mm-hmm. right? So – it's important when you're building your company to hire professionals and, and to, to work with them along the way. So moving, and this is a great time to move on to point 10. One of the, I would say this is the second most important thing or aspect of selling your business is knowing what it's worth. A business is worth what a buyer is willing to pay. It's not worth what you want it to be worth. I think you can leave it at that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, it's that simple, though. It's, it's, it is. It's what's it worth? Well, it, it's worth what buyers want to pay. And right. what's that a measure of? Well, historic transactions combined with the individual factors of your business and financial performance, right? So you do evaluation based on not just financial performance, but what makes your business stand out and make it, makes it more appealing. All the things we talked about earlier as far as adding value and profit, all the things about making your business stand out, all those will show up in the valuation because not all businesses use the same multiple. Mm-hmm. 
Um, some brokers may tell you otherwise, but I don't necessarily agree with that. I know buyers are willing to pay more for a business that has operational staff or maybe multiple tiers of management than mm-hmm. just the owner being the manager. Mm-hmm. If the owner's working 20 hours a week, that business will bring a higher value than if it, the owner's working 60 hours a week. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you should use the same multiple for every business. That's why I don't think it's as simple when someone says, what's my business worth? Well, that's a long conversation <laughs> we should have. Um, but I think it's important for sellers to know that even if you're going to sell your company yourself, you should at least have a conversation with a broker to know what your business is currently worth and what it's most likely going to sell for and how long it's going to take. A qualified licensed broker will have access to the data to know how many businesses in your category have sold, what the average revenues were, what the average net revenues were, what the multiple of gross revenue was, what the net revenue was, the average asset value, the average sales price to rent, the average gross sales to rent, and how many days on market. All of that, they should be able to tell you. Um, because you need to know how desirable your business is, right? If you're in a category that has an average 357 days on market to sell, you need to have that expectation in mind. If you want your business to sell for a million dollars and you see that the comps show that there's, it's about two and a half X net revenue is what they sell for. Well, you need to have, you know, a, a very substantial business to, to, to meet that goal. But just throwing it on the market for what you think it's going to be worth is going to just waste your time and waste your broker's time and possibly risk exposing your business and risking confidentiality. Right. And I want to add to that. It's not just about overpricing. It is about underpricing as well. I know you had, right as I was coming onto the team, you had um, a company that was significantly undervalued and you ended up selling it for what, like three times what they were expecting because you they got some things in order and you you know, we're able to say, no, actually the market shows this and the history shows this and the data shows this. Let's try for something a little higher than what you were expecting. I kind of want to do a podcast case study on that whole deal because there's some really interesting things that happened there um, that I think our listeners should know. Mm -hmm. The first thing was I was made aware of this deal through an attorney that we work with. And the attorney was hired, excuse me, after the deal fell apart. And the attorney instantly found some things that were very suspect Mm -hmm. in the deal. And the first one was the broker was getting a kickback from the buyer Mm. for several hundred thousand dollars on this transaction. And the terms of the deal were very favorable to the seller and the buyer had, sorry, the buyer and the seller had no idea. The seller thought, well, this is what it's worth. This is, this is the deal I'm getting because this is what Mm -hmm. business is worth. Mm Mm-hmm. The buyer was putting maybe 25% down. The rest was seller financing on real estate and on the business acquisition. And just everything was a mess. It was mm-hmm. like they were going to sell for $1.5 million. They brought us in. We did evaluation on the company. Instantly, I knew, I knew that the financials were off, that there was something missing. The balance sheets weren't balancing. The P&L wasn't balancing. The tax returns, there was major problems. And so they had, they had fired their whole team and brought in it. This, this attorney we worked with as a new attorney and a, and a new accounting firm. And we all started working together and we found what the issues were. We ended up selling that company for almost $5 million 16 months later. That's not a small difference. No, 1.5 to almost $5 million. But the sellers trusted us. They were patient. And, and we walked through that process and we exited the company. 
or they exited the company for a far greater value than they initially were going to. They thought that they were leaving money on the table because they were just very nice people and they were um, they were taking the broker's word for it. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm grateful we had the opportunity to work with them and, and to help them get that win. Mm-hmm. But if they had not asked for a second opinion, there's no telling what would have happened, mm-hmm. right? So it's so crucial to get evaluation on your company, understand what it's going to sell for, even if, you're, even if you're not ready to sell now. Mm-hmm. You want to sell in five years. Know where you're at now, mm-hmm. right? It, it doesn't hurt to have a conversation with a broker because you want to start recruiting these people that are going to be on your team when you, when you go to make the biggest decision of your business career, which is the exit. You need to have your team put together. You need to have an attorney, an accountant, a broker and a financial advisor, so you put yourself in the best position possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say too, ask questions. You know, ask why the multiple is what it is. Ask where they got that valuation from, so that you're not getting screwed over. Right. And again, if if you're nowhere close to us, and you still would like some advice, please reach out. Mm-hmm. We would be glad to offer any advice we could to at least point you in the right direction or refer you to a professional. Even if you don't, you can't work with us, you don't want to work with us, we're happy to steer you into the right direction because mm-hmm. we started this podcast to help business owners so they can avoid the mistakes that we've seen mm-hmm. and so that they can achieve a better exit of their company. Right. And with that, I think we come to our final most important aspect Secret of selling your business. And I think it's setting your expectations. One of the challenges I often run into is that a seller hears a story from a friend of a friend that sold their company in a different industry and they it's like it's like the story of uh some when a man catches a fish, every time he tells the story the fish gets bigger <laughs> and bigger. Well, a lot of times when people talk about business exits, the same thing happens, the story gets bigger and bigger, more outlandish. So this person has walked through life with that story in mind because it's only probably one person they'll ever meet that have sold a company. And they now put that context across their business and say, my business must be worth this if his business is worth mm-hmm. that or her business is worth that. Mm-hmm. And so they have this expectation their business is worth far more than it is. And they come to, they come to sell. And a broker tells them that that's not possible or likely what ends up happening is eventually they run into a broker who's so desperate for listing. They say, yeah, sure. And they throw it up on the market and nothing happens. And then the seller is frustrated because they've, they have no activity. Mm-hmm. And in the first step in this process is knowing what to expect, mm-hmm. right? Um, the reason why most businesses do not sell is because they're too overpriced. Mm-hmm. And they're overpriced because the seller's expectations are they want to sell the business for how much money they need, not what it's worth. Um, Another reason they may sell, too, is a poor listing strategy. They just throw up a generic listing. The sellers may do it themselves, a basic write-up, because marketing's not what they do. And a buyer just looks right over it and says, well, I can can tell the sellers, and this is another subject for a podcast, but I I can tell when a seller's listing a business, not a broker. And they're not going to take the seller seriously because they know they're not professional because they didn't hire a broker. So knowing why businesses don't sell is important for your expectations. Another expectation is how long is it going to take to sell my company? Well, for different industries, it's, it's different. Different size companies is different. Um, sometimes 
larger revenue companies get attention faster than small revenue companies. But that's not always the case either. And it goes industry by industry, size by size, situation by situation. So meeting with a broker and understanding how long is it going to take to sell this company so you have a uh, realistic expectation. It may take a year or two. There's a deal I've been working on for two and a half years. Mm-hmm. It just, because of the size of the deal, that it that's what it's going to take. And I think we drew this on the whiteboard the other day. Mm-hmm. There's a scale that goes from your price expectations to your time expectations. We need to do a PDF of this or something. And so if your price expectations are all the way on the far side of the scale of I need the highest, you know, you have a price range of here's the lowest multiple it might sell for. I mean, obviously less than that, someone will easily come in, but you know, we want to hit your target range, the highest multiple to the lowest multiple. So let's say this price range is the highest multiple possible. I want to get 5X. And then the time is, hey, I have a health issue. I need to get out in the next two months. Well, the issue is if you need to be out in the next two months, the likelihood of you getting your 5X multiple has decreased dramatically. And so you have to set your expectations. You have to, it helps to plan ahead of time and do all of these things that we've said, but then look at your scale. Where am I? Do I need to sell now? Or can I hold this listing for two years, grow the business to meet my 5X multiple? I started doing that when I meet with clients now in person. I, I go to the whiteboard if we're in here and I draw all that, say, okay, here is the maximum price and here's the shortest time market. Where do you want to be? Mm-hmm. And they pause because they want both. I'm like, they're mutually exclusive, honestly. Right. You can't have both. Right. You have to make a choice. Where on this scale do you want to be? Do you want to be maximum price but most time on market or do you want to be in the middle? Do you want to be down here at lowest lowest price but but shortest time right. on market? Because they are completely correlated and they move in, they move in, in, in parallel and so we can't separate those two. Mm-hmm. Um, I can turn over every rock. I can email every lead. I can post on LinkedIn. I can I can use our automated e- outreach uh, tool on LinkedIn and reach out to every potential buyer in the state of Florida, a thousand people. If you're overpriced, they're not going to come. Mm-hmm. So it's important to, to understand that, as you point out, the correlation between those two topics. Right. And I, I think at that point, then, how do you figure out what it's worth? And then I think it takes humility which is, I, it doesn't matter if you're a business owner or not. Humility is hard for anyone, but it takes humility to understand the reality is it might just not be what you want. It might not be worth what you think it is. Right. I actually have a, uh, I have a project that I started writing on that was um, the humility to sell. And that's another good point for us to address in this is that if you want to sell your company, you have to have enough humility to believe that it can exist without you. Mm-hmm. If you think that your business will implode without you, mm-hmm. it will never sell. Because mm-hmm. you may be right, and you've built the business around you versus building a business around the business. Mm-hmm. We have, I can think of two times in the last maybe eight to ten months that we wrote the marketing materials for an absentee or owner or someone who just works minimally in the business. And then we run over the marketing materials with the owner and they're like, well, I sound lazy. I work from home or I don't work at all. Or I'm like, no, that's quite the opposite. This is the testament of your leadership. I tell you this, if you're on vacation and the team is able to run, that's a testament to your leadership. If you're able to work from home or maybe take weeks off at a time, I think that's a testament to the, the company and the empire that you've built. And that's attractive to a buyer. It's doing the opposite. That means you put in the blood, sweat and tears 
to get to that point, it's not point painting you as lazy. And if, if it sounds like that, I mean, hopefully it doesn't, but I think that that's where humility comes in is knowing that it's okay to look like you've, you've earned the right to take time off, you know? Well, it's, so it's twofold. I can speak to this as, as being the owner of the company, there's times when I've not been able to be a part of something and I've had to step out of it and I have to let the team handle it. Mm -hmm. And when the team succeeds without me, I have two choices. The first choice is to, if, if I'm insecure, I may be jealous because I was not as important that I had to be there. Mm -hmm. Or I can say, this team has become so successful that they do not need me to do the task. Mm -hmm. And that's a combination of hiring the right people for the right seats and then helping those people grow and helping them live out their passions in their work environment, right? And so as a business owner, you have to have the humility that one day you can sell. Otherwise, if you think that you're God's gift to everything business, that will show up in every buyer-seller meeting, It'll show up in every interaction with the buyer. Mm -hmm. It'll show up in the marketing. It'll show up in the revenue. It'll show up in the relationships with the team. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be very hard to replace you. And so you're going to have very few buyers who want to make that investment because they don't want to buy a job. Mm -hmm. And then it goes into, as far as expectations go, understanding the reality of the complications of selling a business. You know, this isn't uh, not to say that residential real estate can't be complicated, but this is wildly complicated. It can take months. You know, even the due diligence process, there's a lot more to go through. Um, there's a lot more knowledge and skill it takes to sell a business, to communicate properly, to market properly. Um, and I think having those expectations and knowing exactly how complicated it can be is really important when you're getting ready to list. So... There's a lot of legalities to this industry. Yeah. If you step outside of your your expertise and you make a mistake, let's say if you're a residential realtor, because every now and then we see residential realtors dabble in this because they, they have good these relationships with these clients and they yeah. want to serve them. So they'll try to sell a restaurant. They'll try to sell a nail salon. If you make a mistake and it's your fault, you can get sued. Mm -hmm. Your Arizona emissions insurance may not cover it because you're operating outside of your capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're working a, you know, you're working a deal that's a multi-million dollar deal, and you make a mistake, you can get sued and you can end up having a very large judgment. We, we, I know of people it's happened to, mm -hmm. not personally, but I've, I've seen it happen. Mm -hmm. So knowing what it takes to sell a company, it, it's not the reason why there's only a handful of us in the country that do this is it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a lot of liability involved. There's, there's a lot of complexity and there's a lot of knowledge and technical still skills required that I, I I don't recommend sellers go down this road by themselves. Mm -hmm. Even if you just have hire an M&A attorney, mm -hmm. but you're still probably going to pay the same amount you would for hiring a broker. So that's at least what I've seen. And if you're paying an attorney by the hour, you can pay a broker performance-based commission. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. and, and I think that just goes to speaking to uh, just protecting yourself. Right. You get If you're lucky, you get to do this once. If you're fortunate, you can do it twice, sell a company. Mm -hmm. And you want to make sure you're maximizing mm -hmm. this the potential of the sale. And the reason why I wanted to put this together and the reason why this episode's happening so early on in our, um, in our history as a podcast is 
I think this information is so crucial for sellers to have mm-hmm. to prepare themselves for the inevitable transfer of their business that is going to come. Right now, you shared the the detail earlier in the week with me about um, this is the largest generation of retirees. I think the the, the mm-hmm. baby boomers are exiting in mass. Mm-hmm. They're coming to retirement age and selling their companies. It's huge transfer of wealth. I was reading something yesterday about Japan that Japan is giving businesses away because there's no one that wants to take them over. Mm-hmm. So this is a great opportunity for buyers to maximize on buying a great company that they can now run for the rest of their working career and then pass on to their kids or sell themselves, build a legacy. And this is an amazing opportunity for sellers to take advantage of, of all of these buyers that um, the opportunity of all these buyers who want to buy businesses and you have lending available you have opportunity, you have all the things, all, everything is aligned right now to have a great exit as a seller. Um, so it, now is a great time to sell and now is a great time to buy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But you have to know how to do it. Right. So I think this is a good spot to wrap it up. I agree. I, I want to thank all of our listeners for supporting us. We thank you for liking and subscribing, commenting, engaging on our social media. That helps push the algorithm, and that helps us advertise as a company, and that's how we were able to fund this endeavor is through our efforts at Exit Strategy Group, helping buyers and sellers purchase companies and have exits and perform mergers acquisitions. So I'm very excited that we were able to do this and share this information today. Bear, is there anything else you want to add? No, just please comment. Tell us what you liked, what's worked for you. Uh, share what you want to hear, what uh, episodes you want us to cover in the future. Yes, if you have any questions, please add them to the comments because I want to build enough questions that we can have a Q&A episode in itself. Mm-hmm. That so. would be awesome. Vera, I thank you for being on this episode today. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, awesome. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>